All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, innit? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. Standard issue for all women. Hello, Jen here to tell you about this week's Sunday Chops. So it's the last weekend of January and possibly you had in your mind at the beginning of January that you were going to go and take up running or, I don't know, try out Zumba or, I don't know, any kind of fitness goal that you, you may have had in mind at the end of last year slash beginning of this new year. Possibly by this point you're starting to think, it's quite hard. Don't know if I can be bothered anymore. And that's fair enough because, you know, you're busy and it's hard to get into exercise. So in this week's Chops, I chatted to journalist Danielle Friedman, author of the new book, Let's Get Physical. We chatted about her new book, about the history of the women's fitness industry and the origins of the classes that you see today. We talked about perceptions of women's strength and the ways in which society dismisses women's leisure pursuits and we chatted about the barriers to fitness what puts women off where we could be doing things better especially at school age and guys if you are thinking of giving up on your fitness goals brace yourself because daniel gives me honestly the best piece of fitness advice i have ever 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 received so i hope you'll listen to this i hope you'll find it as fascinating as i did talking to danielle and i hope that you manage to go for that run later if you feel like it i'm joined by journalist bar and running enthusiast and author of the new book let's get physical danielle friedman hi danielle 
Hi, it's so great to be here. And it is great to talk to you about your excellent book, which I am thoroughly enjoying reading. Can you tell us what the book is about? The book is a cultural history of women's fitness. And amazingly, it is the first cultural history of women's fitness, which leads me to the story of how and why I decided to write it. The book began really five years ago. Um, I decided to take my first bar class. It was a very kind of cliche reason. I was getting ready for my wedding and I, I had never, I, I am a lifelong runner, but I had never ventured into a boutique fitness studio before. So I started taking bar. I loved the way it made me feel, but as a women's health journalist and a feminist journalist, I also was just, I became kind of obsessed with the larger subculture. I also noticed that many of the moves in class felt kind of comically erotic and nobody seemed to be acknowledging that, that we were, you know, the, the sexuality. So I decided to investigate. And initially, I was curious as to whether bar classes had any sexual health benefits. But then I discovered a much bigger, fascinating story about Lottie Burke, the woman who invented bar and who was very much ahead of her time in encouraging women to enjoy sex and connect with their bodies. I wrote about Lottie Burke for New York Magazine's The Cut. But while I was researching her, I went down rabbit holes and just discovered that there was a much bigger story here about the birth and rise of women's fitness. And amazingly, it hadn't been told. And I, and I actually, I discovered that because as I was reporting the story for The Cut, I was like, it would be great to speak with the woman who wrote the book on fitness history. <laughs> and I was pretty shocked to discover that it didn't exist. But yeah, so for, for every fitness movement, there is a Lottie Burke. This story is populated with just these really fascinating, larger than life, complicated, cinematic characters who had to basically, you know, fight to give women opportunities to move and to build strength in the way that we do today. I don't even really know where to start, to be honest, Danielle, because there's so many different things that you cover in the book and there's so many interesting characters. And you've, you know, you've mentioned... Lottie Burke already as your your starting point you know in in terms of writing the book so why not start there it, it like it sounds like a bit of a leap but can you please explain to us to the listeners what an iconic British woman Mary Quant and Vidal Sassoon have to do with the fitness revolution of course that's one of my favorite stories in the book so Lottie Burke invented her bar workout, um, which grew into the you know, global bar industry in the late 1950s. And when you think about how and why she became su successful, it's helpful to think about the larger cultural landscape of the world and of London at that time. So the short version is that Mary Quant's miniskirts exposed women's bodies and especially women's legs in a way that they hadn't been exposed before. And there was something very liberating about that. But at the same time, as you can imagine, you know, with more skin exposed, women became more self-conscious about their bodies and more motivated to want to shape their bodies and shape their legs, especially. While researching the book, you know, there was 
a great quote um, or kind of a, a chilling quote, <laughs> depending on how you think about it, but from the designer Bill Blass, who noted that, you know, until that point, uh, women's clothes were designed to flatter the figure and now the figure had to flatter fashion. And so it, it ushered in a, a new, I think, much more rigorous era for women's body expectations. It wasn't enough to just be thin. Now there was, you know, more of a focus on being toned. Anyway, so Mary Quant introduces her miniskirt. It becomes the look of the decade and women looking to shape their bodies went to one of the few, if not only places where they, they could do that in a intense, regular way. And that was Lottie Burke's studio. As far as Vidal Sassoon is concerned, and he and Mary Quant were friends and collaborators and, you know, her models wore Sassoon cuts. Vidal Sassoon helped transform women's grooming because before him, you know, women would go to the beauty salon once a week and have their hair done in this very rigid, unmovable way. And because of the time and, and complexity involved, women wouldn't want to mess their hair up and often would only shower once a week, which was not very conducive to exercising or getting sweaty or being on the floor. Vidal's cuts were basically wash and wear. And so he made it easier for women to move. And Lottie Burke herself got a Vidal bob. <laughs> so Lottie Burke's daughter, Esther Fairfax, likes to say that in the 1960s, Mary Quant was doing the clothes, Vidal Sassoon was doing the hair, and Lottie Burke was doing the bodies. That's a good point, isn't it? Because it sounds like such a stupid thing, but I've talked to friends of mine before who are teachers. It's sort of well documented about the way that young women sort of fall out of fitness, fall out of sports and exercise in their mm -hmm. kind of teens when they start mm -hmm. to become like conscious of their, of their bodies. Mm -hmm. And... That I think that's genuinely one of the things. Like it's a pain in the ass to wash your hair, right? Like you don't right. like, like it's actually a bit annoying if you've got to yeah. go swimming and then you've got to sort your hair out afterwards. Like I I, I genuinely think that's a factor. Well, it is, and I, and I just want to say too, actually, um, research has shown, especially and even today, that hair care is a major barrier for Black women in particular. Yeah, and so there are. This is jumping way ahead to the present, but someone I interviewed for the book who is a, a Peloton um, super fan talked to me about how one thing that that brand is doing really well, there's the Peloton Black Girl Magic um, Facebook community where women are are sharing tips for how to engage in fitness and feel good while doing it in as convenient a way as possible in in the uh, from the perspective of hair care management and so anyhow there are sort of hidden factors like that that have served as barriers for women throughout history no, absolutely and it's something that we you know it, certainly I as a white woman possibly haven't necessarily thought about that much because it's not something I've ever experienced so so right you know but I, this year at the olympics we had our first ever woman of color compete in the swimming team in great britain like our mm. first ever in two like in 2021 that's crazy isn't it wow. and there's a story just before the olympics about how the ioc had banned what they i think they said was like a non-regulation swimming cap that was designed right. to accommodate afro hair basically mm -hmm. 
it's mad. Obviously, the barriers that that we don't necessarily think about. Right. So I'm going to ask you about another interesting character. The book starts with Bonnie Pruden in the late 50s, who is appearing on the cover of Sports Illustrated in a Leo light, which is a, a bit like a leotard, I guess. But, but... Leo tight, yes. And she is promoting the message that everyone should exercise. And the quote in the book is, you're not too young, too old, too full of aches, too fat, too thin, too far gone, etc, etc. Bonnie Pudney, by the way, is a descendant of Davy Crockett, which is also, like, fascinating. Mm-hmm. That's a relatively modern message, right? That yes. you're not too whatever to get into sport. So why has it taken so long for that message to become popularized? Let me start by saying, so at that time in 1957, when that Sports Illustrated issue came out, that idea was just incredibly unpopular, just new, radical, because, you know, the 1950s, the post-war era, there was a real premium on comfort and convenience. What was called the modern way of life was a life that basically minimized physical exertion. You know, we think about all the new technology, the home appliances, the rise of convenient food. And so while there was you know, there was much to celebrate about that. Um, Bonnie Pruden and a handful of others were beginning to sound an alarm saying that, you know, our bodies are meant to move and we should be intentional about incorporating movement into our lives. That was her, you know, that was her big platform. She is a fascinating figure and she, that that was one of her platforms, (laughs) but I would say that was her primary message. And it it was a really tough sell then. As I chart in the book, you know, that concept did become increasingly popular throughout the 20th century. And by the 1980s, it, it went from being, you know, ridiculous to being like a cultural mandate. By the 1980s, we had gotten to a point where health or the appearance of health was really equated with virtue and worth and beauty. As far as why maybe it hasn't caught on still today as much as it could, um, because obviously women's fitness and, and, and fitness for men, of course, as well, is accepted today. I think that it's gone, the pendulum has swung a little bit too far in how we think about fitness. Yes, humans are born to move, and there's a reason why we often feel good when we, when we move. There are chemical processes that reward us for moving. But as the fitness industry became an industry and became more of a capitalist force, it it was increasingly sold as this kind of all or nothing endeavor, you know, and that feels really, I can speak for myself, that feels really kind of overwhelming to me. I mean, I, Mm. you know, we're at this moment of cultural burnout, I think especially women are burnt out, exhausted, overextended. And so not everyone feels like they have the time, certainly the money, or even like the mental bandwidth to take on a fitness lifestyle. So I think we're starting to see a, a backlash to the super intense all-consuming fitness culture. And there, there has been more of a shift toward gentler forms of fitness that can benefit us without depleting us. I guess kind of related to that. So I speak to a lot of people 
obviously for this podcast and about fitness culture and fitness trends and things like that and and a common theme that comes up and it's something that you sort of touch on in the book as well is that exercise or weight loss rather that's been the aim hasn't it like the end goal is to either lose weight or maintain a specific weight so a lot of people kind of see exercise as like a punishment for what they Mm -hmm. ate rather than something that they can enjoy for its own merit but that is a comparatively recent thing and you write about how historically women kind of subscribe to diet culture more for that kind of thing and I think we see probably more fitness trends aimed at that now than than obviously we did back then what's what do you think has changed why do you think we have sort of moved away from the diet culture to the kind of fitness culture I have to start by speaking to the history because that's where my that's what you know I'm obsessed with and something that was very interesting something I came across in my research was that in the 1950s and 60s there was not yet medical research showing that exercise led to weight loss and so there were polls that asked people what they did to lose weight and like exercise wasn't even on the list, which is not to say people hadn't kind of organically figured out that, you know, if you, if you were very active or you moved or you were an athlete, your body changed, but it was not prescribed in the way that it, it is today. Diet culture, however, you know, reigned supreme. Well, going back even before my book begins in the 1950s, but diet culture, diet pills, you know, other forms of, I, I think about Jane Fonda writes about how she, she saw an ad in a magazine, which promised tapeworm eggs that would help her lose weight. And she, she actually like wrote for them and wrote away oh. for them and tried them. They didn't work. I think that there has been a very positive shift over the past five or 10 years where diet culture has just come under attack, you know, rightly so from body positivity and body neutrality activists, but also just regular women who who are beginning, you know, to see it for what it is and question the idea that a smaller body is a more valuable body. Fitness culture, I mean, I have seen a shift in the language that's used in fitness culture as well. Um, I always think about this interview I did very early on with the owner of a, a popular franchise who told me that just 10 years earlier in her videos, she would encourage women to lose their muffin top. Mm-hmm. And when she looks at that now, you know, she totally cringes. That's not something she would say today. So at least in the U.S., I think encouraging women to change their bodies for cosmetic purposes and fitness to, for weight loss purposes has become, you know, pretty taboo. That language has been replaced with the language of strength and empowerment, not necessarily for, you know, purely virtuous reasons. Women's strength has been commodified, you know, in many areas. But it is, I think it is progress. said there that you know you think it is progress and I have a question about this that I've asked other people that I've spoken to on this podcast as well I'm interested in your thoughts on Mm. it Bonnie Pruden said no muscle no curve so people started to exercise because they realized that they could change the shape of their body as well Mm -hmm. and that what I want to talk about now 
as I talk about more than I'd like to admit on this podcast, I'd like to talk about the Kardashians and, <laughs> and the fitness trend, the the kind of, well, the aesthetic trend that mm-hmm. has been born of the Kardashians and, well, I mean, arguably appropriation or, or or whatever but obviously over time we have different fitness trends different aesthetic trends etc etc but i would argue that the likes of the kardashians have popularized the idea of having muscles or having like a bigger form or more mm-hmm. more shape to the body than like when i grew up the the fashionable thing was to be like stick thin basically it was all like the 90s heroin chic etc etc yeah. you know the the idea of like strength training and 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 how popular it is do you think it is progress or do you think it's actually kind of like much of a muchness and very much the same old thing it's a great question. I mean, I think one thing that is that is different today that has changed is that there is much more diversity in what's held up as as a, a beauty ideal for women. I was a teenager in the 90s too, and while, you know, yes, it was more acceptable for women to have muscle. It was the the Kate Moss, nothing tastes as good as skinny feels, heroin chic look dominated and like with, with some slight variation, you know, as embodied by Britney Spears, you could be muscular as long as um, you were thin enough for, for your muscles. Yes, of course, the Kardashian influence cannot be ignored. But I think that from what I've seen from my my reporting, it's not the only body type that women are striving for. One measure of change, if you just look at the the types of bodies that are used as models for some of the most popular workout wear brands from Lululemon, which, you know, very famously a few years ago said their clothes were only for thin women to, you know, Nike, the fact that there are larger models is just something that that is new, you know, in the Mm -hmm. past five or so years. I think about the good that that Lizzo is doing with her body activism. So I think, of course, there are some aspects that are just kind of like the more things change, the more they stay the same. But when you look at the overall direction that things are heading in, I think it has it has improved a bit. One of the things you talk about very early on in the book, which I think is it's a very common perception of the female body. It's, you know, that there is a myth that is sort of propagated that we are somehow the weaker sex. The quotes in the book is weak and ineffectual. Um, from Colette Dowling, who wrote The Frailty Myth. Now, clearly, obviously, if you thought about it for, like, more than a minute, you know, we we have babies. We get pregnant. We carry children. We give birth to children, which is physically probably more demanding than anything the majority of men are ever going to actually have to do in their lifetime. So it's quite obviously nonsense, do you think that the reason we have historically been told that is because men fear our strength or at least our sort of potential for strength? Do you think that is where it comes from? Yes, a hundred percent. Yes. I think, you know, I think telling women that they are weaker and highlighting the differences between our capabilities is a way of keeping women 
subordinate to men. It's really interesting because the way social shifts have worked, you know, throughout history, at least throughout the past 150 years or so, is it's like when patriarchal society needs women to be strong, suddenly it tells women they're strong. And when it needs women to be weak and cede power to men, it sends it sends the opposite message. So one really clear example is during World War II, especially in the US, when the, the country needed women to take the place of men on the factory floor, it, it told women, you know, you can do it. And then as soon as the war ended, and the men came home, women were encouraged in pretty explicit, you know, propaganda campaigns to go back to the kitchen. And not only that, and this is, this era fascinates me, it's when my book begins, but it it was a way of sort of establishing the, the proper social order. What I mean by that is men needed to be reminded of their strength and women needed to sort of perform weakness, I think, for the culture to feel like everything was in its proper to not emasculate men basically exactly exactly it's interesting you say that because there were like in i think i think in russia and nazi germany in the sort of second world war or in the in the run-up to second world war there were like propaganda campaigns about women being strong and healthy and 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 all of this kind of stuff weren't there and I, I, I saw something in the book that I thought was really interesting yeah related to what you just said about how there was this real fear that there'd been like an over athleticism developed by women during the 30s it's so cyclical and and even just I think about in the U.S. when when women in the right to vote it was followed by a period in which with like flapper dresses in the roaring 20s, women were encouraged to be really, really thin. And then in the 1930s, there was an upswing. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that women's power, women's power and women developing a trust in their own bodies has been really threatening to men throughout history. And you also note, and it's something that I've again like we talk about on this podcast in relation to all sorts of different things all the time about how things that are aimed at women things that women find enjoyable things that interest women or whatever there's like a kind of cultural trend I guess to mock them or you know perceive them as being you know silly and and you talk about that in the fitness industry as well and I don't know, like Zumba, for example, off the top of my head. Do you think that's for the same reason? The patriarchy does not necessarily want women to realize their potential. Yes. And I actually, I say that directly, you know, when explaining why I wanted to write the book and Mm. why I, you know, felt the story hadn't been told sooner. I think throughout recent history, when women's fitness history has been covered, it's been covered as crazes or fads or, you know, that sort of that same mocking attitude that you mentioned. And what I now see as this more profound story of of female empowerment and strength was really not acknowledged. And so I do think we're, I think we're at a period where women's stories are being reconsidered women's place in history and um, contributions are being reconsidered in a pretty significant way. I think my book is, I see that as being sort of part of that trend. 
And I just, I really think about for as easy as it is to, to mock aspects of women's fitness culture and to look at the, the toxic aspects, the, the, the parts that might be actually tools of the patriarchy. I also know how important exercise and movement and physical activity is to so many women and to myself. I know how much running, for example, training for a marathon, training for half marathons has influenced the way I think about my own potential. And so that was a storyline, a narrative that I just did not feel like I had, I had seen covered enough. And again, and I'll, and I'll just say too, you know, women's sports have really been explored in both the popular and academic literature and rightly so. And, you know, the ways in which sports and athletics empower girls and women, you know, is pretty accepted now. But when you think about it, most women stop playing organized sports when they graduate from, if they played them at all, you know, when they graduate from school, whereas exercise and fitness is something that many women engage in for a lifetime. So I was really curious about the role that it had in women's lives over, you know, over the many, many decades. Well, it's mad, isn't it? Because you can't really have one without the other. So you can't really have sport without the right. fitness side of things, because obviously it's mm-hmm. completely inherently necessary for sport, the different types of training that you would do to enable, you know, elite athleticism. Right. And you can't really have fitness without sport, because that's sort of where it all comes from. I also think for reasons that I'm, I'm not exactly sure, um, I mean, I think I think we could probably think of a few, but, but so many women do not think of themselves as athletic. Mm. If you did not play team sports when you were growing up, or if you finished at the back of the pack in what, you know, we call physical education class Mm. and gym, that idea that it's natural for women to be weak, unless you are the exception to the rule, you know, um, is, is reinforced. But I think that that's pretty ridiculous. Of course, there are elite athletes and there are there you know some people are more physically skilled in certain areas than others of course as with anything but i think if we if we send the message that basically humans are born to move you know if you have the ability and everyone can benefit from it i think that could really shift the way women think of themselves i mean i obviously we come from sort of slightly different because you're based in the states and i'm here in the UK but like my experience certainly of school and again it's a long time since I was at school so I imagine things have I like to think things will have come on a little bit in the last you know however many years but for a start I think that we don't teach women we probably don't teach young men this either actually but we don't teach young women to enjoy sport for the sake of sport we Mm. you know we teach this kind of competitiveness but we don't teach people that actually you can be shit at it and it's still fun like it doesn't like you don't have to be good at it for it to be fun you can enjoy it for the sake of 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 what it is rather than this kind of i must be the best at it and i must win etc etc and that's something i found much much later in life in my late 20s early 30s and The other thing is, at school, again in the UK, and this probably varies a a huge amount depending on what school you went to. So in, like, state schools here, 
when I was at school, what you were actually taught as well was so limited. It was like football, tennis, netball, hockey. There were like a few things that you were taught. And if you didn't happen to like any of those, I don't know, what, like four or five things that they taught you, you just thought it wasn't for you. And it completely, you know, there's so much stuff out there. Mm-hmm that you might enjoy if you were just led to it or, you know, and, and able to find it. I think a lot of people go through life thinking that sport and fitness is not for them because they never had the opportunity to find the thing that they liked. I agree. I agree. And and I, I've certainly seen that in fitness culture. I think there's a lot of people who try a workout, try a particular, you know, uh, dabble in a particular fitness environment, don't like the way it makes them feel and just decide it's not for them. (sighs) On a related note, so I love to run. I have run off and on since I was a kid, but I'm very slow. (laughs) And it took me a long time to kind of accept that it it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to me. You know, it might matter to somebody else, but when it comes to my enjoyment of it and everything that I get from it, it just doesn't matter. And so often when I talk to people who say they don't like running, you know, my advice is just slow down. I don't like running when I'm panting and out of breath and feeling bad about myself either. I think that that is certainly that goes against the kind of American ethos that it's okay to slow down and, you know, to not be striving to be the winner. But but just in general, I think culturally, it's a message that could really benefit people that hasn't quite cut on yet. I mean, I, I've run, run in inverted commas, like I've run a marathon, I've done a few 10Ks or whatever, like I, I've never really liked running because I'm a bit bad at it. And I've never heard that before. And honestly, that is the best advice ever. Like I absolutely love the way it makes me feel. I hate doing it. So listener, if you think you I'm hate, glad. if you think you hate running, I think Danielle's advice is, is brilliant. Just slow down. Do you have a favourite woman who you found out about during your research? Was there one person who like really stuck out? Great question. I've thought about that before. And my first answer is that I, in in researching these women and so many of them, most of them, I would say are very, you know, these are not perfect individuals. Mm. <laughs> they, they were incredibly inspiring, but in many cases, deeply flawed, complex, very human. But I sort of, you know, I fell in love with them a little bit while writing about them as I got to know them. So it is hard to choose. It's sort of like choosing, choosing among um, your kids. Yeah, yeah. I, I, hesitate, to, I hesitate to say that as mm. a journalist. I've really just spent a lot of time in these women's shoes or I tried to, you know, I really tried to mm. as much as I could. However, the one who I think is just always brings me joy to to watch and to think about is is Judy Shepard Missit who created Jazzercise. And <laughs> Jazzercise, I I loved researching and telling the story of Jazzercise, which really caught on in the late 70s. Judy Shepard Missit did not at the time consider herself a a feminist. You know, she didn't she didn't like apply that label to herself. She didn't see what she was doing as a feminist movement. But I think about a quote from her when she has reflected on the aerobics movement that she helped start, which is that the women who came to her classes weren't necessarily changing the world, but they were changing their world. And I think, I mean, 
that's often how change begins. In any case, the feminist in me appreciates her, but also just looking back at some of her, her videos from the 1980s, it is just, I mean, she's very extra, <laughs> but she, <laughs> she is just joy incarnate. And I am a big fan. Excellent. Danielle, do you have a Twitter or Instagram or, or other socials that our listeners can find you on if they want to find out more about what you're up to? Yes, uh, my Instagram is Danielle Friedman Writes. My Twitter is D Friedman Writes. And on Instagram, especially, I share a lot of visuals connected to the to the book I, I documented my research journey and the topic the topic of women's fitness history is a very visual one I and mean, I, I have tried to share some of that with the world via Instagram I'm gonna look that up immediately after I finish this <laughs> let's get physical was published by icon in the UK on the 6th of January and is available I assume at all good bookshops and online Danielle it is an absolutely fascinating read and as you point out a much needed history i absolutely heartily recommend it to listeners and thank you very much for writing it thank you so much this has been so great standard issue for all women